I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Todd Rose. Todd is the co-founder and president of Populous, a think tank committed to ensuring that all people have the opportunity to pursue fulfilling lives in a free and thriving society. He is also a faculty member at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where he previously directed the Mind, Brain, and Education program. Todd is the best-selling author of two brilliant books, Dark Horse and The End of Average. Todd, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited that you're here. Oh, thanks for having me. I, um, I love your work, and I'm new to, to understanding your work, and I'm excited to learn more today, but I feel that there is so much in it that would inspire so many and make them feel so hopeful about their potential and about the potential for this country. Um, in particular, maybe a good place to start is your finding that there is no average, actually, um, and, that, and that our individuality is actually a thing that could make us all greater, both specifically and, and together as a country. Can you talk a bit about this notion that there is no average? Yeah, it's, it's a funny, um, sort of counterintuitive, but really important scientific insight um, and what I'll say right off the bat is what I don't mean is individualism, like selfishness, right? I, I mean, the, the distinctiveness of each person mattering. And so what we found is, you know, for about 150 years, the way we've done scientific research on human beings is to get a group of people, study them, average them together, and then produce results and say, you know, hey, like whether it's neuroscience, it's like, this is what the average brain looks like. And you know, uh, in education, it's like the average student. And what we've found over the last two decades, when once we got access to in, a lot of individual data, we started to be able to check, like how how close is this group average to the people in the group? And what what was shocking is that like almost always it's just not very representative, and sometimes it literally doesn't represent anybody at all. And uh, you know, it would be one thing if that was the end of the story, like, Hey, we're all snowflakes and like averages don't work. But what's been so powerful is under this sort of science of individuality push, whether it's in cancer research and treatment in, in medicine in general, in nutrition in learning, um, even in the workplace, what we found is we now have the tools to, to genuinely understand individuals on their own terms. And it turns out you can scale that. And so like one concrete example to just give you like how important it is. So, um, you know, in my family, it, you know, there's plenty of people who have uh, like, like diabetes can, can run in the family mm-hmm. and you just got to be careful. And, and so I've always been obsessed about that. I don't want to be diabetic. And um, so, you know, you follow the glycemic index, which is supposed to tell you, uh, you know, eat, eating this food, a potato will elevate your blood sugar a certain amount. Well, right it turns out that's all on average, right? And that's like smushing everyone together totally. and being like, and totally. so, so some colleagues of mine in Israel applied this new science looking at individuals and they did these really, I mean, amazing stuff, looking at deep blood work, gut biome, other things. And what they found was quite literally nobody in the world that they've studied, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people actually responds the way that the glycemic index says they should. Hmm. And what they've been able to do is develop deeply personalized nutritional uh, suggestions based on you. And so uh, they actually commercialized it. I don't have any, you know, I don't have any stock in anything, but it's called day two and I use it. So here's, here's what's fascinating. Like for me, I've been literally, my nutritionist about 20 years ago said, Hey, listen, great, grapefruit is like magical for moderating blood sugar spikes. I, I was having a grapefruit, half a grapefruit almost every morning. Uh-huh. Right. So I do this, uh, this with this new science and I get my results back. Turns out grapefruit is literally the single worst thing I can possibly eat. It spikes my blood sugar more than chocolate cake. Oh my gosh. And my wife, on the other hand, no, it's perfectly fine. And it yeah. turned out for me, the glycemic index was only true less than 40% of the time. And so what's so powerful is, you know, sometimes when we think about our individuality, it can feel like either selfishness, which is not what we mean, or mm-hmm. chaos, right? 
what do you do if we're all so distinct? Well, here's a, here's a concrete example where we can literally improve population level health and wellness by understanding people's individuality. Right. And, and I think the other key there is helping them understand their individuality, right? And where yeah. I've, I've, I've gone through, you know, similar things with functional medicine practitioners. And I think it's extraordinary, the granularity um, to which we can now understand how our bodies function and what works and what doesn't work. And, and I love this notion that, you know, they can say, well, genetically you have propensity towards Alzheimer's, but you know, we can also counteract that with these supplements and, and these mm -hmm. different um, things that you do now. And it, it's, it's amazing to think that like you have absolute control actually, and that there's these different levers. That's the trick right here. And I think it's, it's, I'm glad you brought it up because it, it's, it's an important ingredient because understanding our individuality, it, it's just a fact. It, it, it's not like, now what do we do with it? And, and there's two ways this can go. One is we continue down the path of controlling people, right? Where the, so basically the system ends up knowing you better than you know yourself. Mm -hmm. And we disempower, disenfranchise, um, and, or, you know, or, we actually recognize that that we need to use this information to empower people to make choices for themselves. And it, it's funny, and I, I I really love living in Massachusetts, but I'll I'll, I'll kind of tease our, our our wonderful state here a little bit. When day two first came out, uh, I tried to order it, and so it turns out they wouldn't allow it to be shipped into Massachusetts because I was supposed to go see a nutritionist first. Right, of course. Now, yes. I'm a scientist in this exact field, I'm pretty sure. So I, I had it shipped to my parents in Utah and smuggled across the border. Oh, um, and, but, you know, it's just, there's a, we just have to recognize that the, the age of paternalism, mm. it, it is da it's dangerous, right? And like now that we, we have this deep, deep, granular understanding of individuals that can be used for an, an age of empowerment and, and, and building closer communities on the back of, of understanding and accepting individuality, or it can be used to control people and, and further separate them and, and, and label them and rank them. So that choice is up to us. It, so is that how you ended up writing Dark Horses is you wanted to understand better how, what happens when people do kind of embrace their individuality and, and uh, recognize their core strengths and, and take life paths that optimize around those? So I, I would love to say yes, because that makes me sound smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> here, here's the truth about how I got to that. We can so, that. I think you're pretty smart. So <laughs> the, 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 um, the, how that came about, uh, which was so, so serendipitous, um, before Dark Horse, I had written a book called The End of Average, which just laid out um, for, for the sort of general public, these insights from science that we were learning and, and what I thought the consequences were. And it, it, it sort of luckily became a bestseller. And I, I mean, frankly, I, I was honestly surprised. I didn't know what to expect. Um, well, it's a, it's a great, I mean, it's a great title, like this notion that average is going away. No one wants yeah. to be it, right? And it's <laughs> right, what we're all right, prepared right. to. So it's right, terrific. right, right. So, so I, in, in that book, I had actually profiled um, some companies that I thought had been doing a pretty good job really embracing individuality and turning it into productivity and creativity, mm -hmm. um, you know, places like Costco and Zoho and things like that. Um, and when I, was, when I was getting to know those companies, um, I met a lot of people who worked there who were, had pretty interesting backgrounds, like really non-traditional. Uh, and I... Um, and I said, okay, well, this is great. Like, say Costco was able to figure out how to make use of somebody um, as the head of wine buying who had no background, just crazy different background. But like, how did she find her way there, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how did? And so I, I just kind of filed that away. Like, that's interesting. And then off of the success of End of Average, um, I was sitting there talking to, I, I, you know, I was still at Harvard, which I, I, I just, I just left, but um, and. My former dean, Jim Ryan, who's now the president of the University of Virginia, said, hey, what do you want to do? What kind of research do you want to do here? Because, you know, we should do, do, do more. He gave me some money. And I said, well, you know, I'd really love to know more about these people, like, that have been successful, 
but nobody really saw them coming. And I, I got to be honest, I, I didn't. It was just more like scratching a, a intellectual itch. I thought, yeah. you know, because maybe it is just that that these kind of dark horses are just so it's so idiosyncratic that there really isn't a lesson, right? That could mm. be. And 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 just to double down on um, not being right very often, <laughs> I I went into this study like thinking um, that basically to to buck the system, to be willing to get off of the sort of statics path, maybe the thing you'd have in common was a personality characteristic. And I I had in my mind um, someone who I know and admire, like Richard Branson, right? Because Sir Richard, he literally. It is just part of him. Like he loves bucking the system. Yeah, <laughs> right. So it's not hard for him. He, he, if he was going along, he wouldn't be very happy. So I imagine, well, that's got to be what it is. And it didn't take more than the first ten interviews, where it was just like that's clearly not true. And what kept emerging, <clears throat> I, I kept wanting to ask them, like, what? How did you get better at the things you did? I thought there'd be some lessons there, and they just kept wanting to talk about how they figured out who they were and what they were passionate about. And it was funny within the first three interviews, people were literally using the word fulfillment yeah. or purpose and meaning. And, and I, I kind of, given that like my whole book is like, you know, fulfillment now, it's like, I was like, Oh, I don't want that. What am I supposed to do with that? This like squishy thing. Like I want fulfillment. And so we adjusted the, 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 the interviews. Cause I thought, well, listen, if this is what they're saying, let's dig in to see like, is there a there there? And right, what does it mean? Yeah, is it kind of like after the fact? You're like, I'm successful, and I did it because I wanted fulfillment. Or, but what what you realized really quick was, no, this was the secret that that these people who were able to be objectively just excellent at things and did it their way, it was really starts out as like their view of the kind of life they want to live and what they mean by success. And to a person, they just refuse to play by society's like strict definition of like wealth, power, fame, you know, and, right. and it was about knowing who they are and achieving on what they valued. And what, what made it worthwhile to me beyond just a, a, a large national study and worthy of a book in my mind was that what emerged was there, there was a set of things that they knew consistently that allowed the pursuit of fulfillment to ladder up to excellence, right? Because because it could be like fall your bliss off a cliff, right? That sure, would be very totally. helpful. And and so then it was just so exciting because you realize, wait a minute, th- there is a way forward, right? That that doesn't require that we we just follow someone else's view of the kind of life we should live, and it's not rudderless. Like you can actually make it a reliable way to pursue the kind of life you want to live. Can you can you tell as an example of this? Um dark horse phenomenon. Can you tell, um, can you talk a little bit about your own story? Because I've heard you talk about it, you know, as you being an example of a dark horse. Yeah, no, I mean, and and as you can tell, that's also why it was kind of curious to me. And I I sort of just assumed I was like a one-off, like kind of lucky. And and certainly there is some luck involved, but yeah, like the, the, the short version of it is, you know, I'm, grateful for what I get to do now. And I, I was a professor at Harvard for over a decade and got my doctorate there and I get to run a think tank and do a bunch of other stuff. But I also dropped out of high school. Um, and it's actually worse. <laughs> like I, I actually, I say dropped out. I would they, they actually just told me I couldn't stay anymore. <laughs> like it just feels better if it feels like it was like a mutual decision, right? right. Like where, um, but cause I had a 0.9 GPA and it just school just didn't work. Um, we're gonna we're and, gonna to dig into that, by the way, because it's <laughs> extraordinary that a group of adults decided that because you weren't performing, it was your fault. Yeah, and and you know it's 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 so funny. It gives me a lot of empathy for you know what kids go through, and I yeah. you know I I ended up um, on you know I I, I dropped out uh, shortly thereafter. My my girlfriend. Found out she was pregnant. Now I, I will say she's still my wife today. So it's you know, <laughs> um, it, it turned out it, it, you know, it has a happy ending there. But like, um, <laughs> but but uh, we quickly found ourselves. We had ended up with two kids, um, and I was working a string of minimum wage jobs. I mean, just you know, couldn't make ends meet. We ended up on welfare, um, 
And people were just frustrated with me. And I think my father-in-law fairly was like, you know, if it was my child, I'd be a little worried too. But, um, I, you know, I, I, we could dig into this more, but it is a short version. Is I, like the, the sort of consensus was, including my father-in-law, was that I was lazy. And, you know, luckily uh, um, I, I had been spending more time with my dad. I mean, you know, we always had time together, but like he, he was a, a he's been a, a mentor to me, obviously. And, and we, one day I was sharing with him what I was worried about, that maybe I am just lazy. And he said, you know, listen, it's not that um, you're lazy. It's that you just have to be motivated all the time. And he said, you know, from what he could tell, there were plenty of jobs where people would pay me really well to do the kind of things I'm good at, but I couldn't get there where I was. And so he said, you know, it seems like you either need to be an entrepreneur or you need to go to college. Mm -hmm. And I had like $13 in the bank and no good business ideas. So um, I thought, okay. In college it is. College it is. And so I, I went to school at night. Um, Wait, what did he see though? Because so, so you weren't performing well kind of in mainstream <laughs> education and yet he saw this, this spirit in you, this, this, mm -hmm. you know, you were compelled in a particular way that he thought would really, you know, be yeah. to your advantage. And so how, how, um, how did you, how did you get to and through college? <laughs> like that was actually the thing that was actualized, right? Cause that's like not, yeah. that's not kind of the, the, where entrepreneurs tend to lean into is more school. Like they just kind of want to go out and do, but I understand no funding. So tell me just how, how did you, I guess, evolve? Yeah. Or what did you run into in that? It, first of all, it was pure, like, I didn't know where, what I needed to do or be, but I knew that what I was doing, I couldn't keep doing, right? And I knew I had an obligation. Um, it's one thing to ruin your own life. It's another thing to ruin the lives of little kids who depend on you. Yeah. Um, and and we had pulled together just enough money. Um, the, the school, the, the college thing, first of all, it was Weber State University, fantastic open enrollment public school in Ogden, Utah. Um, and I, we had just enough, my, my in-laws and my parents said, listen, we can help you pay. Cause the tuition was like $800 a term. And, um, and that was not, we didn't have that. And they said, listen, we can get you through your first year. And my dad said, listen, it, it, he said, I know that when you're motivated, uh, you're great. And when you're not, you're not. And he said, mm. listen, if you want this, um, you can get an academic scholarship. And if you're not there for the right reasons, you shouldn't be there. And so I, I was no kidding. Um, the job I had right before when I decided to do this was I literally had taken a job as a certified nurse assistant in home health care. No kidding. My job was to drive around and give people enemas because it paid a dollar more an hour. Oh and wow. it was a tough job. I mean, it's honest work and someone has to do it. Uh, but that's not a long-term <laughs> you know, so, so I, I couldn't stop working. I just had to start going at night. And so I'd go to school for three hours every night, um, weekdays. And, and I, I didn't know what kind of student I would be. I just knew I needed to do something different. And my dad told me, we both agreed that whatever I had tried in the past, which was trying to do it the way everyone told me, mm. um, didn't work. And so, you know, I had to start thinking about this was sort of like, if I fail at this, it, uh, there is no other path. And so I just, I started taking seriously, like, don't try to fool yourself. Like, who am I really? What's working? What doesn't? And I'll, and I'll tell you, like, you know, I slowly started doing better. I picked classes. Like they told me, okay, you got to, you, you failed algebra three times in high school. You should take remedial math. Well, remedial math is the most taken and failed course in the country. Right why would I start there? Like, um, so I picked classes that I was really interested in so I could build up study skills. But, um, there's one moment that literally, uh, changes the entire trajectory of my life. And I, I I'm happy to share it if it's not, yeah. but well, yeah. so, so, okay. So I, I just didn't want to ramble on too long, but like, okay. So I'm sitting, I had learned that like, I started realizing for me, there were certain characteristics about the learning environment that mattered. I'm just not someone who will sit still and just listen to someone drone on and on and, and talk to me. I want to be engaged. I want to debate. I want to talk about it, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so 
I was doing things like picking classes based on professors, you know, the sort of usual thing. Well, I'm sitting about a, about a year in, you know, I started, had, had done better. And I kind of thought like, well, look, I got an A in this class because it's this class, right? You, you just kind of find all the reasons why it's not really that I'm a decent learner. It's, it's that it's the context is easy or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting in, in um, a big lecture hall in, a, in, in history class. And I happen to be sitting next to a kid I, I grew up with named Steve. And I'm just like, this is so boring. I mean, like, it is just, I barely can get through this. And Steve says, hey, look, at least, um, he goes, at least it's not as bad as uh, what I got myself into with the honors program. And so for me, I thought honors would be like the same exact stuff, just more work. And so I'm like, what, what kind of sucker's bet is that? Like, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> But that's not what it was. So he starts telling me that he's like, no, listen, it's awful. He said, there aren't tests. You just have to write and you have to persuade. And there, he's like, we don't, there's no lectures. We, we just talk. And he's like, I don't even think they're right answers. <laughs> and in his mind, this was like awful. Right? Right. Yeah. And in my mind, this was like, Sunday at the Rose household with my mom and like oh, it's we, so interesting. So I, I immediately like they, they had built this honors program, which they were trying to elevate, you know, the, 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 the procedure of this open enrollment school. And they, um, so they've got this, the honors programs on the second floor above the library at the school at the top of the hill. So I immediately went up there. I don't know what I was thinking, but, um, and I, I go into the office and I said, I'd like to talk to the director and you know, I, I, I'd like to be in the honors program. And, so they, they they let me in and uh, into the meeting. I, I went and talked to the director and yeah. he said, "Hey, look, I'm, I told him I'm interested." He said, "Okay, great. Yeah, no, we're really trying to build something here." And he said, "Hey, I just have a couple of questions for you." He says, "You know, um, how are your? Uh, we did ACTs back uh, then." Yeah. It's like, how, how are your ACTs? I said, "Oh," uh, and I told him, and you know, they were let's just say on the wrong end of the curve. Um, right. And he 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 threw me a lifeline. He said, "Well, it's okay." Um, not everyone's good at standardized tests and which is definitely true for me. And he said, you know, what was your, what was your high school GPA? And I, I there's no kidding. I said, uh, I said 0.9 and he looked at me, he said, uh, what 0.9? <laughs> I, I had to clarify it was 0.9. And he was so nice about it. He didn't humiliate me, but he said, he said, listen, you can't be in the honors program. Right. Um, and what I think I remember, but he, he tells me that this is not what he said is, you know, we have standards. <laughs> like, right. But, but um, so, uh, so I, I just felt like I was like, oh my gosh, what, what, what am I doing here? What, what did I just, I just rushed up. Like, of course I can't be in this. So I, I grabbed my stuff and I, I thanked him for his time and I start to walk out. And as I walked out of the office, his secretary, the uh, woman named Marilyn Diamond, uh, was sitting there. And as I walked past her, she reached out and grabbed my arm. And she said, Hey, uh, I, I, I overheard the conversation. She said, if you want this, don't take no for an answer. Hmm. And I, I just yeah. looked at her and I said, like, what? Like, I didn't know you could do that. Right. <laughs> like, right. And she said, look, just, if you want this, go sit on the couch out here and show them you're serious. So I was like, oh, go Marilyn. How many, yeah, how many so, kids has she done this for? Like, we just, well, this is the great thing. I thought it was just me. It turns out she's just a superstar for it. She believed in everybody and oh. it was amazing. But, oh. um, so I sat there, <laughs> the director comes out and he says, Hey, you're still here. I said, yeah, I want to be in the honors program. And, um, and he said, you know, you can't. And then he, I, I stayed there. What felt like the entire day, it was only like a couple of two, three hours. But, um, finally he pokes his head. I said, all right, come in here. And he comes in, he says, listen, I, why do you want to be in the honors program? Like, I, I don't get it. And yeah. so I explained to him, like, listen, this is what I've learned about myself, about what the right fit is for me. Yeah. And I know my track record doesn't show up, but I know this is going to be the right environment for me. And he said, okay, well, look, I, we can't just like let you in, but here's what I can do. I'm going to let you pick one honors class. And if you are there and, and you, and I'm going to ask the professor when it's over, if you're the best student in the class. And he said, by the way, by best, I don't mean having the highest grades. I mean, they can't imagine the class without you. Right. Um, and he said, then I'll let you take another one and we'll go from there. 
So I was like, okay, I got to pick the right class. And I picked a class called Plagues of the Modern Era, which scared the, I mean, I almost made me vegan because I was like, (laughs) but, but it was amazing. It was like, I didn't even realize learning could be like that. And I, I excelled and I got to take another class and another one. And flash forward, I, I ended up graduating as the honor student of the year oh um, and, and got into Harvard. And one of, one of the proudest things, um, one of the things that matters the most to me is, um, you know, the future director of the program reached out to me. This was just like this year and said, just to tell me that how much this, that story had affected how they had seen the honors program because before they were trying to be selective, quote mm. unquote. And then they realized actually what this should be is anyone who has the desire should be able to be a part of it. And so, so that experience wow. literally prepared me like, like Harvard as a grad student was nothing. I mean, it was like my, the, the, the honors program at Weber state was by far the most quality education I received. And like, on paper, you'd say, wait a minute, you can't even pass algebra in high school. Like you have nothing on paper that would suggest that if we put you in something that seems like it's harder, you would do well. Um, And it it, it just took away from me the the incredible importance of fit. And that kind of leads me to all of the scientific work that I do now. Yeah. So we we need to dig into that. But, you know, it, it makes me think of two things. The first is that I don't know how closely you follow the um, district across the river, but, you know, in Boston public schools, they've been deeply negotiating and um, intensely debating um, and have, you know, new rules around admissions to uh, Mm. exam schools. And um, they're not very different, actually, than the old way of doing things. And um, they certainly aren't focused on finding the students who most want to be there because they align with the, um, the methodology of, of a particular school. And so it's, you know, there's, there's one part of me that wants to talk to you about how, how do we really think about at every step helping students guide themselves through a Mm -hmm. process of self-discovery so that they really, you know, their outcomes are, aligned with, with their potential. Um, and then there's another part of me that wants to talk about how, you know, society, and I think it's really amplified right now because of social media, which is in such an infantile, infantile stage, you know, it needs so mm-hmm. much, um, development around it. And so it, it allows, this notion of the norm and the thing that you're supposed to be and comparisons and, you know, extremes on either side. And this notion that you either are, or you're not, or there's a right way and a wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you know, those, those two things kind of are happening in this moment. And, and what you're saying is nothing is zero sum. That yeah, it, it's really exactly. about the individual, the Im- individual, you know, almost, I mean, maybe manifest is the wrong word, but it feels like that's what happened in your journey is that you, you, you dedicated yourself to your potential and then you set yourself on a path to find out exactly what that was. And and, and you're thriving because of it, right? Like you, you yeah. gave yourself permission to not subscribe to this notion of, of norms. That's, that's right. And, and the thing is, is what, what's really important here is that this point about like zero sum thinking versus positive sum, which is simply like, like in positive sum systems, and, and this is part of my background is in systems, um, complex systems stuff. It's like, listen, systems can generate abundance, right? Or they can like, like think if we play poker, it's zero sum, right? The only money I can win is by taking it from you all, right? Like right. Um, free markets generate abundance right? Like it's not that, that somebody gets rich by taking it from everybody else. They create abundance and we can all benefit if we've structured that system the right way. Um, right. The truth is, is when it comes to human flourishing, not just material abundance, we have all the ingredients to make that positive sum, meaning that every time you increase your happiness or flourishing or fulfillment, it actually does have broader benefits to the rest of us. Uh, but what we've done is we've lived through a system starting with like Frederick Taylor and scientific management 
where we literally accepted the sort of social Darwinism of like, listen, there's just some people that are better than other people right. and there's never enough to go around. And so what we have to do is figure out how to divide the scarce resources. So if you take the school version of that, right, think about how silly this is. We say, listen, right, there's some kids that, that really have something to contribute and we know how to find that, which by the way, we don't. Um, and we pick these tests and then we give those kids that score, well, more resources and then they do better and we're like it's because they're better and we're like no it's because you gave them more resources right. like and so what's funny is is um one of my intellectual heroes benjamin bloom who you know uh, actually invented like mastery-based learning and he right. he actually found one he a doctoral student of his they studied um gifted and talented programs about like because it's kind of absurd you're on a bell curve and like if you're in the one district you could make the threshold and get into gifted programs the same kid in a different district wouldn't mm -hmm. it's like yeah. kind of kind of ridiculous but so what they found was actually the the single most efficient predictor of who would succeed in gifted and talented programs had nothing to do with any tests you could give them any grades they'd gotten you literally made it open to anyone and you accurately described the work and it turns out kids Kids that have no interest in it are not going to sign up for more work. They're just, it's, so it, it, we, we've created a false narrative around human beings and human potential. And we're, we're locked into it without realizing it, even as like, literally we have all the ingredients necessary right now to have a completely different kind of society. And um, that's really the work of populist. My think tank is like, listen, like we can get these conditions right. And once you start to realize that we're all better off when we're all better off and that, that then suddenly investing in other people's kids, investing in each other is both the moral thing to do and the self-interested thing to do. How, and, how do you get people yeah. to shift in that direction though? Because I, so I'm sitting here thinking about what you're saying, right? Which would mean that there would have to be truth in marketing. So if, if I tell you the truth about what the situation is, then you may align with it, but you may not. And, mm -hmm. you know, in the case of, you know, poor urban districts across the country, um, it's so interesting to me that when polled, it's like 90 something percent of parents believe that their kids are getting a great education when the truth of the matter is that they're on average yeah. two grade levels behind. The, right. Where, where they sit. And so how are parents just completely being lied to? So uh, it's interesting. So we, we spend a lot of time. So my, my think tank, uh, we developed a set of methodologies called private opinion research, because you realize that like social pressure distorts public opinion, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reasons why people don't say what they really think and want. And you like, we're seeing that politically <laughs> like, yeah, right. crazy, but like the, um, what we find, for example, with these parents who would say like, my, oh, my kid's school. And, and listen, I'm not saying every school is bad. I, I no, just, no, I think what, hap yeah, what happens is, is that um, for a lot of the parents, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance, right? So like, especially parents, poor parents who don't have any other choices, right? There's no option. If you think about, I am dropping my kid off at a school that I know is bad for them. Like, like, how do you stay in that space very long? And so a lot of times we'll, we'll immediately say, listen, I think mine's pretty fine. And then what they'll say is, but I think most schools aren't that great. Mm -hmm. And what we find in when you do more qualitative work is it takes five or six ways in before they'll start to tell you some of the things that they really are frustrated with. And oh, that's interesting. So actually, yeah, it, so actually the data is not correct. The, the parents, so, you, you feel like parents do know. I think they do. And, yeah. and, and the thing is, is that, um, and, and I'll tell you the other thing, which I think is the most interesting thing from an education standpoint, and it's where most of our education work is right now, is that, um, you know, we just finished, we built an instrument um, to look at the actual priorities that parents have for education. Because um, you can't have everything, right? It's trade-offs, right? If you, like, so what really matters to you what, uh, for your kid's education it is what what most people want out of education is so different than what the system is. It, it's shocking. And like what, what we've recognized is that the real frustration for most parents and the public, frankly, is it's less about that they want it to be better. It's that they want it to be different. And they, they, they don't 
want you to keep saying, well, listen, we're, we increase these test scores by like 2%. It's like, yes, but like my kid's a whole child. My kid has interests. You don't seem to care about their interests. Like, they, like you know, so, so the reason this is really important is, you know, it, it comes down to when you're trying to think about systems, there's only two kinds of change you can make, right? You can reform it by keeping the purpose as it is and making incremental gains, or you go toward transformative change, which is literally changing the purpose itself. And what hmm. we've seen from our research in almost every system that we have right now, so education, higher ed for sure, uh, criminal justice, healthcare, uh, immigration, like what's happened is there's just this decoupling from what the systems actually do versus what the, the majority of the public wants them to do. And so, for example, um, in, in criminal justice, the vast majority of Americans want the criminal justice system to be rehabilitative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got you to gotta do your time, but then we should do everything in our power to help you get back in the community and make a contribution. But they believe that the vast majority of Americans just want it to be punitive, right? So they're stuck, like nothing happens. And the same thing with education, mm. the same thing, like it, it, we're living in these illusions where we're just wrong about the majority um, and, yeah, and it's are we wrong a- about the majority because we live in these myopic worlds where we we're just everything we're seeing is reinforcing our mm-hmm. yeah own opinion. Yeah. So so here's what's funny. Um, and by the way, this is this is actually what my next book is about. So I, I apologize, but I'm, I'm yeah, I love it. on that part. But but what's really weird is up until recently, in the last two decades. It's always hard to understand what the norms are for your group, what 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 you think most people think, right? Because you don't have all the data. You have to just make inferences. Usually, we'll make the wrong inference by thinking everybody's like us, right? Like, oh, I like it, so most everybody must like it. Well, something weird has happened where now in, with our own data, like everywhere you look, we're making mistakes about the majority, but it's the exact opposite direction, which is we think we are isolated and alone when in fact we are the majority in so many things. And, and there's a reason for it, right? Which is number one, uh, we've got a culture that does not want people to share different opinions. We just don't, right? We're just intolerant of that now. And like that, it's just not good, right? You, you, you don't convert someone by silencing them. Um, they, and so we'll misread that, but there's a bigger issue, which is more about the technology, which I'm a big fan of. I love, (laughs) I love, you can't do personalization without it, but you think about like social media and you look at Twitter and 80% of all content on Twitter is generated by 10% of users. Hmm. So, and it turns out that those 10% are wildly unrepresentative of the population. So the, the problem is, is our brains, when we're guessing what we think everybody believes, we're, we're not very sophisticated about it, right? If you're told something over and over, the repetition affects your estimate. Um, you know, if it's easy to remember, you think it's more common. So what we're seeing is this loud fringe is actually controlling so much of what we see. And it's not like, it's not like a bad actor. It's just like the structure of right. the technology itself. Right. And so we, we end up generating inferences about our groups that are just wildly incorrect. The problem is, is that it becomes self-fulfilling, right? Yeah, like, right, of course. Yeah. And you lean into so that and you start yeah. putting energy there. And, and I'll give you a concrete, this is where it gets really scary and dangerous. These illusions sound like, well, you know, we've got bigger problems, but actually I, I don't think we do because once, once I think, let's use the idea of success. Mm. Um, so our, our success index we did with Gallup which was the largest study ever of Americans' private views of the life they want to live. It was so cool. Um, The vast majority of, uh, the vast majority of Americans reject zero sum thinking. They they think it's ridiculous that somebody has to lose. They hate comparing themselves to each other. They want to pursue meaning and purpose. And they actually, we we know what they mean by it. We know what the ingredients are. Um, Yet this is like two thirds of Americans hold that, hold this more fulfillment oriented view. They think they're a 5% minority. They think 95% of their fellow citizens believe in zero sum, believe in comparison, and are chasing wealth, status, and power. And so so it turns out the best predictor of collective action is not what you think. It's what you believe the majority believes. 
So here, here's how this plays out in its, in its practical consequences. <clears throat> so I think success is about being better than you, even if I don't really believe it. I'm like, I think this is what society wants of me. Mm-hmm. So I play the game. Of course, I turn out miserable, right? It doesn't, doesn't right. convert into subjective well-being at all. Right. Um, but meanwhile, it pits us against each other artificially, right? Like mm-hmm. you get into a great college, you use an SAT, which is a bell curve test. That means half the people have to fail no matter how good they do. Right. Okay. So we are competition now, not collaborators. Right. Now here's, here's the worst part of this. This is why it, it's like, for me, this is why I'm writing this next book is like, it is the self-fulfilling prophecy of this. So let's, I'll give you one really like concrete thing. So um, the, the number one thing that most Americans believe most Americans care about for success is being famous. The Kardashian kind of like people think we think, oh, of course people want to be famous, right? With our private opinion methods that you cannot fake. So it it is drop dead accurate out of 76 different possibilities of what could be part of a good life. Being famous is literally dead last for Americans across all demographics. Okay. But because they believe it is number one for people, what happens is, is media, entertainment, advertising, they're trying to give us what they think we want. And so what we see is a change um, in the types of orienting that the media does around success, what's shown to us and our kids. Now, uh, my colleagues at UCLA have tracked um, middle school kids um, and like how they view themselves and who they are as they're kind of becoming more like, you know, little adults and having their own views. For a really long time, the, the, the top things most middle school kids talked about was character driven. It was about being a good person, being a good friend, being honest. About seven years ago, I'll be off by a couple of years, give Mm. or take. um, It suddenly changed. And the top thing is I want to be famous. Really? I want to be famous. Not only that, I want to be a YouTube star. I want to be so. So here's the thing. This is what happens. So we're living under an illusion where we we quietly try to, yeah, we try to live these quiet lives of dignity and purpose and meaning all the while looking around us thinking that nine out of 10 people next to us don't hold these same values. And you feel isolated along that. That's one problem. But the problem is these illusions, if left unchecked, actually become the private opinions of the next generation because our little kids, they don't know better. They're looking to us to know what we they should value right. and how they should think about it and what they should desire. So why I'm Marin and what my what populist my think tank does is find these illusions anywhere they are, because democracies cannot function without a shared social reality. And and then we use um, partnerships in entertainment and media and and within systems to actually dismantle those illusions so we can build from common ground. Uh, and I'm I'm both you know scared about the fact that these illusions exist, but actually quite hopeful because we know how to deal with them. And it's is it mostly technology? It's it's media and other channels of communication that amplify the wrong thing. It, is that is that yeah. the way you, it, you turn it the is, dials I, in a different direction? It, it is, but but my my take is that that's baked into the structure of the technology, right? Like. It, the, the fact that we're going to get a misread because 10% of people generate 80% of the content, there's not mm. much to do about that. Okay, right. um, so to me, it's the way that we think about the, how we get to somewhere better is like basically at the end of the day, it, it's recognizing about how we actually treat each other within our real life communities and not allowing that misread to start to distort the way we see the people that matter to us. And that don't, don't distort our behavior. And so what we're aiming for is, yes, we'll dismantle the illusions. We can shift distorting mm. norms that, mm. that change our behavior. But ultimately, we have to put in the hands of people the knowledge and skills they need to be authentic, right? To know how, how to navigate a world that's trying to pressure them into being something they're not and saying something they don't believe. And if you can get that authenticity, and, and sometimes we think of authenticity as almost like selfish. It, it might be the single most important thing you could ever do for the group that matters to you, right? It's really interesting though, because I mean, if, if you if we could make the assumption that you know right around the corner is some sort of technology that allows us to read each other's minds, 
then <laughs> yeah. kind of the, the whole game shifts, right? Because then you yeah. amplify the 90% who are currently not amplified. And, and I would imagine, given your research, it completely changes the trajectory. Of- yeah, and, and exactly. And I think that like, so up until we get the mind reading technology, what, what we need is we need to recognize that we have an obligation to our communities to respectfully share what we actually right. think. Right. Because right. it doesn't do anybody any good um, when, when we when we shade the truth to fit in. And yeah. what's worse is we're shading the truth to fit in to a phantom. It's not even real. It's not even what the group wants from you. And by by mistaking that and leaning into it, you're literally creating the illusion for everybody else. So I, I see we've got a lot of challenges as a society. But what makes me unbelievably hopeful is that. When you look at what people privately think and want, whether it's the lives they want to live, the country they want to live in, um, what they want out of our education system, criminal justice, those things, it is, while there's a lot of plurality, it's pretty remarkable that the one thing we have in common is a near rejection of the status quo and a return to a focus on purpose and meaning. And there is a latent belief in each other that is so uplifting and hopeful. Now, you can't feed your family on hope. It's not a good national strategy either. We have to convert that private hope and private desire into public behavior right. and the way our systems um, function. Wow, this is oh, this is so mind blowing. Uh, your your book is going to be so important, and I don't think that it could come at a better time than right now. So so what's what's the takeaway? I could talk to you for hours, but what what's the takeaway? You know, for anyone listening. How does that, I mean, there's so many takeaways from this conversation too, right? Because there's, we could, we could talk for a much longer time about how you really, um, you're, you had such a great guide in your father who helped you understand your best attributes and, and your passions and, and helped you find a pathway to pursue them. And, and, you know, so there's a whole story that I would love to pursue about just how do we help every child, Mm -hmm. Um, find that same path, right? Because it's so promising yeah. that really in all of us is the opportunity to succeed in exactly the way that we want to succeed, right? That that success is really defined by who we are and what we're good at and what drives us um, and not really anything else. But then there's this other whole other conversation, which probably feeds into that, which is how that, what that does to society. If mm-hmm. we actually say, you know what, the chains are off. We're, we we no longer have any expectation of you other than that you be your ex- authentic self in a positive way, um, and 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 we'll respect, we'll respect and, and admire the path that that you each take. And I'm glad you're bringing that up because I do think that once you get into this positive sum mindset, right, um, there is an obligation. So so to me. For this to work, it's about fulfillment and contribution. So fulfillment without contribution is selfishness, right? Like you invest in me, I do this stuff, but everything I do doesn't benefit anybody else. Then, then what was the point? Right. Um, at the same time, contribution without fulfillment can become the sort of greater good where basically it's just like self-sacrifice, mm. right? Um, and so what the social contract is really in a positive sum system is listen, we are, we believe every single person has dignity and worth. We believe every single person has something to contribute. And we do not know what any one person is capable of. And what we do know is that their individuality is central to both their fulfillment and whatever contribution they can make. So if you take those three basic principles, then what we are committed to as a society is investing in each other in ways that allow you to realize who you are and be equipped to to realize your full potential. Your obligation is to turn that into something that contributes back to society. Now, that doesn't mean volunteer, although it could, right? Like a a great businesswoman, like if if she's not making her money by like, you know, (laughs) ripping off the taxpayers or something, like, really making like profit a proper way is, is contributing, right? You're adding value oh, yeah. to other so, people's yeah, lives. Playing everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so if you recognize, but it's not that hard, right? Like here, here's what, here's what happens. 
Um, this is the, the sort of paradoxical value of individuality if you get the conditions right, which is it is the source of belonging and community, right? Again, like the, the fitting in is not the same thing as belonging. If I have to literally change who I am just so you won't reject me, like that is not belonging. Right. Belonging is, is when, right. yes, we have shared values and there are some things that are out of bounds, obviously, but what we're striving for is to be as inclusive as possible. And, and, and I'll, I'll just say like the, the last thing I'll say about these positive some systems, which are entirely possible. Again, like we've lived through an economy for a couple hundred years that has generated more material abundance than all of human history before it, right? Mm-hmm. Over the last 50 years, human happiness has flatlined. Right. Imagine what happens when you take the lid off of that and like what kind of, what kind of society we have. And, and, and for me, the, the thing that's the most powerful sort of consequence of this kind of thinking is that if you're looking at a positive sum system where everybody can contribute and it actually benefits the entire system and society, then the multiplying effect is about inclusion, right? It is about including everybody. And then, and anyone that's left out harms everybody. Right. And so suddenly, you know, when we're looking around at the kind of unbelievably unequal access to quality education, for example, well, guess what? If it's a zero sum system in which some kids have to lose, you, you can't really fault right. parents for being like, well, it's not going to be my kid. Right. Oh man. Yeah. But if it's, but if it's not that way, then we're, it's not. we, we, we would be really annoyed that anyone was. Yes, it, it, exactly. It, it, the, the social norms that will emerge would make it unacceptable right? because every time you exclude a little kid from realizing their full potential, you're creating a negative externality that harms the, everybody. And I will just say, like, you think about like, like, you know, economically speaking, you know, Adam Smith, which I wish more people read, like my mm. libertarian friends like to quote him, but don't seem to have ever read him because he was a moral philosopher that cared a lot about poor people. That was his primary focus um, was how do you improve the lot of, of the least among us? And he gets to free markets that way. But like what's fascinating is, you know, before that we had mercantilism, which literally assumed economies were zero sum. So there was no point in trading with anyone. In fact, that, that you were losing if you were trading, right? And we've got some leaders today that think that's also true, right? right? So, right. Um, and Adam Smith's central insight was, wait a minute, that, that's just a wrong assumption that you can generate abundance through division of labor, right? Through comparative advantage um, and through trade. But that means individuals have to have rights, right? You have to be able to trade yourself within the system. Countries should trade. That was so paradoxical, like so counterintuitive. And yet up until that point, the most powerful country in the world, England, never had enough food to feed its own citizens. Right. And so what do you do, right? In a zero-sum system, you conquer, you enslave, right? In a positive-sum economy, you trade, right? It matters. Rather than try to conquer a country, you want them doing what they do best and you want to be able to trade. So it, we recognize that economically. If we take that same mindset and realize with respect to human happiness and human flourishing, it holds as well. Then it changes how we see other people's kids. It changes how we see our neighbors. Like it matters. And, and I don't see any way out of the kind of conflict we're facing as a country as long as we're locked into this zero-sum thinking. I, I, I just don't. But once we get out of this and we see each other as worth investing in and trustworthy I, I, I honestly believe we're going to get somewhere qualitatively better out of this this uh, friction that we're in right now. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree with you. I, I'm very positive about this because I think it's waking everyone up to the notion that um, it, it can't be possible that uh, I'm always right or I'm always wrong. And I think for a little while we were stuck in that paradigm. It, it, when you were talking, though, it did make me think like I had this image of a symphony right? Where, where when you get to um, a robust point in um, moving away from zero sum, it's really the symphony that's mm-hmm. most important. But until you're there, um, the conductor plays a massive role in yeah. organizing um, the symphony so that it does, you know, resound in a, in a beautiful way and, and that there's respect for every part of the symphony. And so, um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that there 
are many ways to influence the symphony. Um, I don't think we can depend on one particular leader to, to get us there. And um, yeah, well, I love your I love this metaphor because if you think about it, like yeah, it does require those of us that have some some power at the levers of our systems to recognize that, like you know, in the same way that like a company, every company would love to be a monopoly. I mean, that's, that's like, let's just be honest, right? But you recognize that monopolies are bad for the entire system. So so by being able to accomplish that, you're literally cannibalizing the abundance generating machine. And it, it ultimately is end up bad for everyone in the long run. Totally. Well, like, like in, in the rest of our society, like we have to realize that like we've spent ever since Frederick Taylor, who taught us that like people couldn't be trusted and the system matters more than people, we've got to realize that it's just not true. And that like what we owe each other is trust, what we owe each other is support. Um, and it doesn't mean, you know, uh, blind support and blind trust, but but like like if you just recognize like that that whether it's a system like education, like think about like, we almost don't care what parents say, that there are no feedback loops that hold schools accountable to parents. Do you know what I mean? Like, like we don't really like, it's okay to recognize that in the future, the people have to matter more than the systems. Those systems exist to serve people. And yeah, you can't flip a switch overnight and then suddenly we're all positive some, but we can take meaningful steps in that direction. And the thing I can tell you for sure is that the American public's private views are, are already there and that the obstacle is that they don't recognize that they're a majority. And, and I'll just say that, like, that, that to put a finer point on what's possible here is these kind of illusions, right, where we're just misreading the majority. They're powerful when they're enforced, but they're actually really fragile, right, because nobody really believes it. <laughs> and so, so you look through history about the kind of unbelievable change that's been possible when it's been held back by an illusion. So one of my favorite examples is like the Velvet Revolution, Czechoslovakia. They overthrew an authoritarian regime without anybody losing their life. Mm. And it's, you know, um, Václav Havel, who was the leader of that dissident movement, he was a, a playwright. And he started to recognize that, that the people didn't believe what they were saying because they would come to his plays that were making fun of, subtly making fun of it, and they would laugh at all the right parts. Mm. And so he started realizing that, that that changing this did not require military. It didn't require even a political party. It required authenticity. It required people recapturing the willingness to be who they really are in small ways. And people made fun of him. He, he wrote a thing called Power of the Powerless, which is one of the best documents I've ever read. Mm. And he he says, look, this is how it changes. And, and again, people just said, this is so naive, right? Well, you know, about three months before it all changed, he was giving an interview uh, with an international newspaper. And he said, well, look, I, I'm here to see it all the way through, but I don't think it'll change in my lifetime, but I'm still committed to it. Three months later, he was the first democratically elected president of a free society. That's and so if we can overthrow tyrannical regimes, same thing happened with marriage equality, fastest change, in public opinion and mm. in recorded history right. because people privately already accepted it. Right. If, if, if we can redefine marriage, you know, we can do things like get to a place where we invest in each other because we want to, where we can change the purpose of education, where we can change the purpose of healthcare. Like these are things we're just doing the things that people actually want. Right. These things, it won't be easy. It'll be, it'll be difficult, but I, I promise you it will not be more difficult than overthrowing a tyrannical regime like so <laughs> so i think that, you know that. yeah it's just we just have to recognize that it, it really does begin with with being true to who we are and, and and recognizing that that our communities matter that 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 they're worth investing in um and that we're all better off when we're all better off mm, i totally agree with you i think that this needs to be chapter one if you're willing um because there's so much more to talk about and your work is so fascinating and more people need to be exposed to it. To I mean, it's the only way, right, that we start to realize that we yeah. all already are where we want to be. Yeah. Well, count me in. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for um, spending time with me today, and I look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Todd Rose. I love Todd's perspective on our future and our opportunity to seize on this lemon of a moment in time and make lemonade. I agree with Todd. This is not a zero sum game. I believe in win-wins and I believe we can take the momentum created by this pandemic and channel it into positive directions for our kids and for ourselves. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.